On December 12th, the UK's Labour Party suffered a historic defeat, its worst showing in over 80 years. Areas of England known as the Red Wall that had been bulwarks of Labour support for decades fell to the Tories in a humiliating defeat for Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. 365 of 650 seats in Parliament now belong to the Conservative Party. This gives Boris Johnson the power to ram through his Brexit agenda and any other legislation his party wishes. Today we spend the hour discussing the UK elections with Ravi Bali. Ravi is a housing rights activist based in London. He's authored many articles for With Sober Senses, the web journal of Marxist Humanist Initiative. For instance, you might check out his piece called A Tale of Two London Protests, published this year about Trump's visit to London. We might check out his contributions to MHI's left forum panels in 2018, or his contribution to a debate on uh, the MHI website that happened before the original Brexit vote called Should the UK Leave the European Union? Differing Ideas About the Coming Vote. While our conversation covers many important aspects of the political crisis in the UK, it is not a fully worked out perspective on the current state of UK politics. Marxist Humanist Initiative does hope to soon produce a more developed perspective on this issue, and we hope that this three-way conversation serves as a prelude to that endeavor. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Klein. To hear more episodes, read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. Please also consider making a donation to our website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Hey, let's take a minute to talk about the podcast and answer a question that we've heard a lot recently. And that question is, how does one listen to and find your podcast? Now, you've, you're listening to it now, so you've gotten this far. But if you want to listen to it again, what you want to do is go to MarxistHumanistInitiative.org and go to the left sidebar and find the link to our podcast. And there are the links to all the episodes. You can also listen to our podcast on SoundCloud where it's hosted. Now, on the MHI website, you can find our RSS feed. And that RSS feed is something you can copy and paste into any podcast app or service that you use. And it will allow you to find our podcast and subscribe to it on that service. And if you are searching for our podcast on one of these services, you want to search for the podcast by its whole name, Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. If you think this podcast project seems worthwhile and you'd like other people you know to hear it, please share it with them. And also consider doing all those superficial things that actually really help a podcast out, like like the podcast on your iTunes or Apple Podcast app or what have you leave a comment, share on social media. Those things do really help spread the reach of the podcast. So Ravi, I mean, that was a very big uh, debacle 
for the Labor Party in the uh, election on December 12. They lost a huge number of seats, uh, some seats that had been Labor seats kind of forever. It was massive, right? It was very big, even compared to 2017, which was also the Corbinite Labor Party. It was the same leadership of the Labor Party. We had a really massive wipeout, really, for Labor there. Why? Why did this occur? Um, Well, this is the biggest kind of rousting of Labour by the Tories in over 30 years. And the last time it happened on this scale was when Michael Foote was leader of the Labour Party. And he was advocating um, like unilateral nuclear disarmament. He was considered um, a real figure on the left who was advocating massive redistribution of wealth. Corbyn doesn't represent anything like that level of um, redistributionist, um, like even radical kind of politics in terms of uh, anti-warfare, anti-nuclear weapons or anything like that. He's he's much more moderate than that. But the wipeout in terms of how it was perceived and the way it was presented, Corbyn was presented as a radical hard left candidate. And he his kind of credentials as a potential prime minister were trounced by all the media. But normally you get most Labour leaders are, are attacked by the tabloid press and are kind of described as unfit to lead the country. This time you had like, like major sort of newspapers and figures within the kind of broadsheets also doing the same sort of thing and just vilifying Corbyn as, as just like completely unfit to lead, um, which is unusual. Uh, Rabbi, to what extent is this a vote a vote against Corbyn? And to what extent is it acting as like a second referendum on Brexit? I think both elements are there. I think there was definite hostility to to Corbyn and there was a a relentless media campaign against him. And he's not a very effective political operator. He's kind of, he's he's got, he's this avuncular figure who comes across as quite kind of pleasant. He's a decent guy, but he's not in any way combative or someone who kind of rises to the challenge of the accusations that are made against him. So, yeah, there was a lot of attacks on Corbyn, which he didn't defend himself particularly well against. And on top of that, the the whole kind of Brexit position, where he was arguing that Labour would argue for a better deal from the EU and then put it to the people again, and when pressed as to where Corbyn would go with that better deal, would he then campaign for it and advocate for it? He still wouldn't be drawn because he's got a long history of being Eurosceptic and being anti-EU. And even though the majority of the activists within the Labour Party were pro-Remain and against Brexit, Corbyn refused to outright say that he was pro-Remain. He fudged it and said, look, I will be a kind of fair, fair arbiter on this and I will implement whatever the people say on a second referendum. And most people just said, well, that's, that, that's not a, a credible position. Either you, can, you can't say you're going to negotiate a new position and then you won't say whether you're prepared to campaign and vote for that. That, that, that seems to most people just be a ridiculous way to stand. So it seems from what you're saying, Ravi, that the, I mean, there, there's Corbyn himself, you know, and his Euroscepticism, and that leads to a kind of wishy-washy position uh, with regard to Brexit. But it seems like 
this in combination with the shifting dynamics of the country created the worst of both worlds for labor. Uh, they lost uh, the people in their base who were pro-Brexit because they didn't come out as, as a pro-Brexit party. Um, but they, they weren't sufficiently anti-Brexit to enable um, people to say, okay, if you want to uh, stay in the EU, uh, vote for labor. So you had a lot of people splitting off, uh, still remaining or a big uh, increase in the popular vote for the Liberal Democrats and a number of other uh, smaller uh, but fervently uh, anti-Brexit parties. Is that your understanding that they lost the votes of the one without gaining sufficiently of the other? But the, the thing that's weird is that because it's been presented as the hard left um, versus like kind of very fairly hard nationalists, the the outcome for the Lib Dems as the it's kind of the central party that kind of picks up those who think both parties are extreme. One of the leaders, Ed Vasey, has um, has said that well, the, the problem is that you've got a situation where because every time the Labour Party goes hard left, the Lib Dems are squeezed out because things become more. Public and people worry more that if they don't vote for Tories that the Labour, Labour Party might get in. And so whenever the, the Labour Party goes radical, a country that by, by his reckoning and, and by most of the media's reckoning is quite moderate, every time that happens you, you have people trying to stop a radical Labour government getting in by making sure that they support the only party that's credibly going to win the election, which is the Tories. I don't, I don't think the narrative holds up. Corbyn isn't particularly radical, but that is the present and that is the perception as well. So your 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 understanding is not that the increase in the popular vote for the Liberal Democrats was driven by their more um, firm anti-Brexit stand, but was driven by fear of radicalism in the Labour Party. Is that right? Yes. And you think that like Labour was sufficiently anti-Brexit in people's minds that if you'd had sort of like a I don't know, a Tony Blair or something heading the Labour Party, that the Liberal Democrats would, would not have gotten a big vote and everybody would have rallied, all the Remain forces would have rallied around Labour? Yes, I think that's right. I think that's far more likely um, because the, the Brexit was the big topic and, and the major issue of this election. And despite everything that the Labour Party tried and, and Corbyn tried to make it about the NHS or um, whatever other issue it was, Brexit did dominate all discussions. And most people seem to think that, well, that is the prior question before we get to any of these other issues, because that's a question of who rules yeah, which which brings me to a, a number of questions ha having to do with what the debacle uh, means, what the implications are for the, the Labour Party, the Corbynista left, and that has a lot of implications for the left in the United States, which is, you know, around Bernie Sanders or around uh, the, the Green Party, been pursuing similar things. Um, what Labour tried feverishly to do was to make their social democratic demands and nationalization of some industries and stuff, they tried to make the election about that when what was on everybody's mind was Brexit. And why did they think that they could do that or just did they have no alternative? Why? Did, why? Did, it seems that they thought that like social democracy would be like something really, really attractive to people and, you know, capture their hearts and minds. And I'm like, how could anybody think that? 
But then again, you, you, you've got to pose the question that lots lots of left sort of thinking people think that, well, there are other issues to, to be dealt with. And whether we're in or out of the EU, the question of what is the priorities of our government and should we spend more on like the NHS or um, education or housing, whatever it is, that to them is something that is prior to the question of governance and who rules. Whereas for the majority of people, because there's been a, a constant narrative that the EU undermines national sovereignty and takes away power from the British Parliament, it means that you are undermining British democracy itself. Although a majority of the, the population is, is is for staying in the EU, and that even showed up in the vote, um, you know, a majority of people either voted for Labour or one of the more uh, strongly anti-Brexit uh, parties. Um, so, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's not just that everybody who... It, it wasn't just an issue of national sovereignty. I mean, there are people who would, 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 would say, okay, Brexit is the big issue, and we want to remain in the EU rather than, you know, ha have this hard Brexit or, or, or whatever it might be. Um, but I, it, my question, I think, still remains... Okay, you have people in the Labour Party, and for them, you know, specification of certain social priorities is the, the, the key issue. Not Brexit, not any, anything else, but they're running in an, in an election. How can they have such a misconception of where the people are at that they're going to try to run an election on the basis of their own concerns uh, or is it that they just didn't care? I think this is this is really tricky because one of the one of the main things that I think is underlying that is talked about in a a problematic way by the liberal kind of newspapers and commentariat is that they they regard like the, the Brexit constituency, the pro-Brexit constituency as racist, xenophobic, narrow-minded, ignorant and what have you. And there was a, a moment and, and in all the kind of post-election uh, fallout, there's been kind of all kinds of rancor inside the Labour Party where, for example, you've had Caroline Flint who was in a in this, a seat in South Yorkshire um, called Don Valley, which is near Sheffield. Um, she lost her seat to a Tory, and she accused Emily Thornberry. And this is this is a bit like the um, deplorables moment in the Clinton campaign in America. And she said that Emily Thornberry had accused her voters of being stupid um, because they were pro leave And there's there's a real kind of divide within the Labour Party of whether you should respect the working class constituencies that are hostile to the EU and see the European Union as a bureaucratic imposition from the outside and having a, a sense that, look, we, we just want to fudge this and try and understand that, you know, those kind of concerns cannot be allowed to um, push Britain into falling out of the EU and being left far more vulnerable than being part of the European club. And and that's, that's the way that the split between between the, the Leavers and the Remainers is, is discussed that on the one hand, the, the Remainers describe the Leavers as, as backward and xenophobic and ignorant. And the Leavers are saying, look, you need to respect what people say. And if, if they say they want to leave the EU, that is what we should do. And that, that's the dichotomy inside Labour, as it is within the country. In your previous answer, you said that a lot of 
people in the Labour Party regard uh, deciding the, the, the social, general social economic orientation of the society as the key issue that takes precedence over who is running the government. Um, okay, but they're in an election where on both the Remain side and the Leave side, voters overall are saying Brexit is the key issue. Okay, so how can a party that's trying to win an election um, and, you know, be, become the government, um, replace the, the conservatives, run an election based on their own feelings that Brexit is not the key issue, it's not the priority issue of the moment, how can they do that in an environment where the whole electorate, both sides, is saying the opposite? Do they not recognize that or do they just not care? That was my question. If you are a, a social democratic politician, which Corbyn is, then you have a longstanding hostility to interference from like EU regulations, which, which will restrict the extent to which you can have a, a reforming radical Labour government, which isn't what they were offering anyway. But there, there is a, a kind of economic nationalism that's been at the heart of like the sections of the Labour movement's hostility to the EU. They see it as a neoliberal institution that imposes um, open borders, free trade, uh, and limits the extent to which you can have protectionism within a country. The, the existence of a, a protectionist bloc means that you operate as a bloc, not having individual countries imposing their own rules to favour their own individual economies. That You, you have to in some senses, pool sovereignty when you form an economic block. And that's for someone like Corbyn, who is hostile to the EU because he, he operates, his consciousness is how do you bring Britain up to, um, you know, in his terms, how do you implement a, a state socialist program? You find it more difficult when you're a member of the EU because that imposes limits on you. That, in a situation where he, he has a, a firm conviction on that and he's got decades of hostility to, to the EU. But the main base of his party, or the activist base anyway, is pro-Remain. They they see the EU as part of a, a European club of cooperative nations in which we, yeah, we pull sovereignty, but that's no big deal. And they, they, they don't see the kind of neoliberal aspects as, as a huge problem. So Corbyn's kind of fudge and saying, look, we're neither for Remain or um, Leave. Instead, we think the question wasn't decisive the first time, we, we, are, we are arguing for a new referendum on the basis of a better deal. And people just didn't want that. So that, that's the reason that so are you saying that they miscalculated and thought people would be would want to hear this fudge and would vote for people who were fudging and they just didn't see that it wouldn't work? Or were they instead trying to uh, patch up factions within even the Corbynista section of the Labour Party? I think it's the latter. They 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 went for a fudge because he wasn't decisive enough to say, look, we have to take a side on this and we have to be decisive in saying this is what it means, this is what it will lead to. Instead, he tried to play it both ways, and and that that came unstuck. So they basically were aware of the risks in terms of an electoral debacle of doing this, but they decided that keeping a united. Labour Party at the moment was their priority. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That 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 really says something about left first politics.
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the whole the whole problem of Corbyn wanting to remain in charge and trying to implement his kind of social democratic program, when most of the people who are the activists, which is Momentum, and the people that are pro Corbyn, they they are actually in they see themselves as internationalists, and they they think that the EU is the way in which they express their internationalism, um, even though there's all kinds of problems with that. And and Corbyn, to his credit, recognizes that, but his alternative of a kind of national social democratic program is not—it's not any more credible. That they're both disasters. Right, but what what you've said, although you know it's it's very polite, is a most people will interpret it as a very strong condemnation of the Labour Party that they're willing to let the country move to Boris Johnson's version of hard Brexit and have Tory control. Uh, of of the country just so that they can maintain their control over a Labour Party and have uh, that Labour Party not split and especially not split from Corbyn. I mean, that's the implications of what you're saying. And, you know, I had my suspicions, but to actually hear it is, is rather shocking. Well, I, th- I think in his own way, Corbyn thinks he's being principled because if you are kind of a national kind of social democratic politician and you, you want to, you think there's a national road to socialism that you can use the state to alleviate poverty, have structural investment to improve the lives of the like mass of the population. Then anything that kind of curtails your ability to push that in a kind of far-reaching and radical direction, you're going to see that as a problem, as a barrier. And so, therefore, Corbyn thinks that his opposition to membership of the EU and the restrictions it does impose on what a national government can do is perfectly rational and sound. And so. When he kind of triangulates, how do you cope with the, a situation where there's his opposition to what he thinks is a, a barrier to social, like progressive politics, and the fact that his all his activists and all the people who are going to do the door knocking and who are campaigning, who who would do his campaigning for him, they are pro EU. You then have to make a decision. Well, how do I square those two things? And the only way he was able to do it was to fudge it. He did not have the kind of conviction to say, no, 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 this is important if we're ever going to have radical democratic change in this country we need be, we need to be able to make our own rules that would have been a more coherent position as far as some of the kind of um what's called lexit Lex, in other words left-wing brexiteers were saying those people who were arguing for a leaving of the eu but doing it on a, a socialist um kind of reformist sort of principle that those, those people were not were not able to win the argument and Corbyn just thought, well, it's it's not going to be possible to shift my baser canvases to his Euroscepticism. So the fudge was a way of saying, OK, we will put that off and say, in the meantime, we will hold a second referendum and we will respect whatever the outcome is. And hopefully people will become clearer as to what their, their minds are when there's a better deal on the table. And we can see we can try and negotiate from the EU something that will benefit the British economy more. And if you're still not happy with it, then we will leave. That's what Corbyn tried to do. It's really convoluted and it's really long-winded, but there is a, a tortuous logic to it. Right, but the but the logic of it is when you. It seems to me. I want to know whether you agree or not. The logic of it is that you need a social democratic agenda in a nation state that has economic control 
to the extent that anyone does, that can pursue its own protectionist policies rather than, that, than those of a protectionist bloc like the EU. Okay, that, that the road, you know, to social progress is basically the Labor Party controls the, the government and we are willing to risk everything. We're willing to have Tory control for God knows when. You know, they might decimate the, the National Health Service, sell it off to American companies. God knows what they're going to do, and they'll come up with this hard Brexit. And so what we're prepared to do is to go down to defeat unless we've got our social democratic win here. Um, it, it seems to me they're saying, yeah, the, 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 the lesser evil is Tory control and a hard Brexit. It's, what we have to do above all is re, re, retain the, this, this Labour Party so that someday, come what may, we can get back in control with our social democratic program. Yes? No? I, I'm not sure how decisive Corbyn is. I mean, the rumours are that he was reluctant to accept the leadership in the first place and that he, he really did not want to be there. You're the only candidate that has got any credibility just because of your longevity of having remained principled on a number of touch paper issues. And, and he, he, he is not a decisive or someone who's prepared to say, OK, I'm prepared to fight this all the way. If it's a matter of individual conscience, he'll stand out for it. But he does not argue a position and logically fight for what he thinks. It's, it's just not in his nature. As, as, a, as a political operator, he's dreadful. He's a decent bloke. And lots of the people who are around Momentum will talk about his decency as, as an individual. But as a political operator, he is hopeless. Okay, so that goes to the issue of Corbyn and his personality, and I don't discount that. But you had a whole party, and they they, they went with this, okay? They, they went with this strategy or, or whatever, and I'm just trying to get to the issue of what they were prepared to have happen, which has now happened, as an alternative to saying, look, this really is an issue of leave versus remain in the EU. What we have to do is prevent a Tory government and the kind of Brexit that they are going to impose uh and it's not lexit in other words instead of dreaming for what you want and saying our internal unity in the labor party and our eventual political control is the be-all and end-all recognize the risks why why did they say that these risks which have now become realities they might define what a generation of politics why were they prepared to to accept that and it, I mean, that cannot be explained by, by Corbyn's problems alone. I take your, your point in, the, in your question, Andrew, but I wonder if um, the Labour Party was even aware that there was such a danger of a landslide of this proportionate. My understanding was this is a, was, was a surprise for a lot of people. I mean, there were predictions of a Tory victory, but not on this sort of historic proportion. So is it maybe plausible that that wasn't even, you know, part of the risk benefit calculation that was part of the strategy? I mean, part of me almost wonders if um, labor preferred not to be holding the hot potato when it came time to deal with this Brexit issue. It seems like it's a lot easier to criticize than to actually have to be running the country uh, with this Brexit scenario. I, I don't have enough contact with Labour Party types to be able to make an informed sort of opinion on that. My sense of it from reading the papers is that they they, they were trying to triangulate and pick up the, the people who 
recognise that having lost the referendum in 2016 and Brexit, you know, the, the vote to leave um, won by a, a narrow margin, that if you were going to overturn that, you would need to put it to the people again. And so a second referendum was the only way that you were going to be able to, with any credibility, say, okay, this is what we're going to do. However, most people, when that was put, even those who initially voted Remain said that, well, this has dragged on for two and a half years. We just want it. We just want it over and done with. Whatever we've decided, just get it done. So when Boris Johnson said, look, let's just get Brexit done, that resonated with people because the idea that we were going to like prevaricate and like delay and have another referendum, most people had just had enough of Brexit dominating the discussion in British politics for the last two and a half years. It, it was, it's too long on this single issue, which should not have been dragging on for as long as it did once people had made the decision. Even Remainers, a lot of them had made up their minds that we should just re respect the result of the vote. Initial Remainers. Obviously, there are people who, who thought it was such a big problem to leave the EU that they, they steadfastly opposed it because they think it would impoverish Britain and leave us in a much more kind of vulnerable sort of position to be um, dominated by America or China or, or whoever. We need to be part of a European bloc to be able to play to our strengths. And so some people were pragmatic in their kind of economic nationalism, thinking that they do need to be part of a bloc. But those who looked at it purely at, at the level of democracy thought that, well, we've made the decision, we, that should be respected. Um, as to what you do with that, and I think most people in the Labour leadership understood that. So it was a question of, well, how, how do you do that? Because leaving the EU is going to put us in a situation where, or advocating a leave the EU will alienate our, our kind of activist base, who will be the people who get the vote out for us. And Labour always rely much more than the Tories do on having an activist base that can go and talk to people door to door, just because the media in this country are, are so much more sort of favourable to the Tories than they are to Labour. So that activist base is absolutely critical in anybody's thinking who wants to um, imagine that the Labour Party have got a chance. I have a couple questions. Um, first, on the idea that, that, that Corbyn, you know, was perceived as too radical uh, and that this is the reason for the debacle, um, the election uh, last week came on the heels of an election two years ago. Um, and uh, in that election, Labour did not do so bad. Um, and that was, you know, Corbyn was at the head of the ticket then. Um, and, you know, compared to that election, uh, Corbyn lost votes this time, um, but the Liberal Democrats and, and other pro-Remain uh, parties picked up uh, support. So there are two issues. First of all, it's not clear to me that the, the electorate swung in a let's get this over and done, meaning Brexit, direction. Um, the, the, the electorate was, I mean, if, if, if you basically think that, that everybody who ended up voting Labour was was not for Johnson's version of Brexit, at least, you, you had a, a pro-Remain majority of uh, the popular vote. So it's not clear to me that the uh, the popular vote at all represents um, a shift in favor of Brexit, first of all. But second of all, I mean, Corbyn was just, his politics were back then, two, two years ago, were they not the same as they are now? So what... Or, or did people just not recognise that back in 2017? There's a large element to which the discussion about the divide in Britain between London, which is seen as a peculiar... Um, situation where it's the centre of politics, it's where obviously Westminster is, 
it's it's where most of the national media are based. However, if you look at the way in which the um, kind of first past the post system is set up, then even though in economic, cultural and political terms, London is enormously important in terms of the balance of seats within Parliament. The thing that swung it was the places that had previously been strong Labour areas for decades, if, if not nearly a century. So places like Wrexham, Blythe Valley, which everyone kind of refers to, they, they have been Labour for so long with such huge majorities. For them to have flipped to the Conservatives is massive. And it's it, it can only be explained at, at the level of, well, there was something going on at in terms of Johnson in his post-election speech said that Labour voters were prepared to lend their votes to the Conservatives. So he's he's suggesting that there is a natural Labour constituency in these kind of old industrial heartlands that look to the Labour Party as the representative of the old working class. But the only place that bucked the, that overall trend of people saying, look, enough of this, is London, which has got an extremely high um, proportion of migrants. Like I think more than more than half the people who live in London were not born there, and you've got a situation where London remained a Labour stronghold, and yet because it's so central to the way in which politics is discussed nationally it gives a distorted picture of what's going to happen nationally if people are concentrating on what's happening within the Westminster bubble and inside London alone. Okay, so let me see if I can clarify, because I think I understand your answer. First, you're saying that with regard to the shift towards getting Brexit over with and done, that you're not referring to sentiment within the country as a whole shifting, but to what have been traditional labor strongholds, maybe in the Midlands and the North, uh, those, some particular seats shifting, and that turned what had been a close election in 2017 into a debacle in 2019. Have I got that right? Yes. Okay. Um, but secondly, then, my, the other part of what I was asking was, Jeremy Corbyn was just as Corbynite in 2017 as, as he is in 2019. And so the idea of Labour having suffered a massive uh, defeat owing to Corbyn's perceived radicalism, well, if that were the issue, why was there not a massive defeat in 2017 owing to uh, Corbyn's perceived radicalism? I, th I think the, the key difference is, is that Brexit had not kind of been going on for so long and had hogged the national attention for so long and that people had got fed up with it being unresolved for so long. That wasn't the case in 2016. The election had only, so the, the referendum result had only just happened and it, that that was the difference this time, that the, the this is, this has become, people are just fed up of it. They, they just want it sorted one way or another and so you're saying that you're saying that 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 
that oh we're not going to vote for Corbyn and Labour because they're too radical, that's actually an excuse, and the real issue is being fed up with Brexit. It's different for different people. I think the Brexit thing is the major thing. I think the the Corbyn thing is a secondary thing. And the whole dangerous socialist narrative of which Corbyn is labeled, is that just about economic policies or is that also about, you know, these charges of anti-Semitism or sort of soft on terrorism kind of things as well? Well, like the whole the whole question of anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, terrorism, all the kind of kind of touchstone issues where to, in, in simple terms, the, the threat of Islamic terrorism, I mean, even recently we had the, the London Bridge attack um, where two people were killed by some guy who was kind of on, on release, early release for um, kind of acts of terror. Um, the, the, there is this kind of polarization of the threat of Islamic terror versus the failure to see that the Jews, and particularly the question of Israel, in which Corbyn has um, a long record of support for the, sort of the cause of the Palestinians, all of that is kind of thrown into the mix of him being in favor of terrorists and not supporting the only democratic state in the Middle East. And so being hard left is is not only seen as kind of a bit cloud cuckoo land when it comes to economics, but he takes weird kind of positions when it comes to the security of the nation. And all these things go into the presentation of Corbyn as someone who is an unhinged kind of left-wing extremist who cannot be trusted because he's, his judgment is, is just skewed on everything. Uh, and just to be clear here, because what you, what you said is very uh, damaging to him, you're saying that this is a perception. You're not saying that you accept this perception. No, I don't accept the perception. I, I, I think it is a perception. Um, it's... It, it, he's. I think as a political figure, I think he's hopeless. I think he's he's a he's a decent sort, but he he is not someone who is able to fight for ideas and in a kind of clear and uh, you know insistent way say, okay, this is why we're doing it. This is why we need. He he just does not communicate these kind of things clearly. Um, so, as a political operator, I, I, I think he, that there are real problems with, Clint, uh, with Corbyn as someone who is, as, yeah, is able to kind of convince people. He's, he's, he's just not, in the cut and thrust of parliamentary politics, he's not an effective leader. And if that's the way you, you're going to operate, then that's what you would judge him by. I mean, as it happens, I think that there, there are broader questions of, you know, in a situation where people are seeing immigration into the country as a problem and the need to restrict it being an issue that should, like, 
determined that we should be out of the EU so that we can like say who comes into our country more effectively. I, I think that's ex, ex, an extremely divisive view for working people to accept. And even though it may seem natural and it may seem obvious, I think that that, that kind of cuts across the idea that you can just look to whoever is around you that is in the same position of being a worker and see common cause with them. That nationalistic perspective of saying that because they're immigrants, that they, they have a, a different interest to us, that's that's poisonous. And part of the problem with Corbyn is that rather than seeing that as a, an issue that needed to be tackled head on, he, he just, you know, sort of said that, okay, well, you know, I think the Tories are extreme racist in the way that they are pushing this um, anti-immigrant stuff. Okay, yeah, but what are you going to do and what are you going to propose as an alternative? That that was not pushed. At the Labour Party conference, where they decided to pass a motion in defence of free move, freedom of movement, and Diane Abbott, who was the shadow Home Secretary in Corbyn's um, shadow cabinet, said that that is not Labour Party policy. And again, you've got a grassroots who, in some senses, are pushing for things to be made more radical and say we should go out and win the arguments. And the leadership are saying, well, well mm, no, we, we want to, we need need your energy we want you to you know have the passion to go out and fight for these things but we're not making that policy we, we will see how it goes and i think that that kind of traditional divide between a an activist base that are is full of idealism and wants to see radical change and a fairly cynical leadership that will kind of try and use that and manipulate it to their advantage i think Corbyn has done that as much as any previous Labour politician has done. You know, I'm wondering whether the Labour Party, Corbyn and, and whoever, thought that way to deal with racism, instead of a, attacking it head on, was just to issue mealy mouth condemnations, but also to try to do an end run around the whole racism issue by getting the working class united around labor uh, on the basis of social democracy? Because that's a big thing in the United States. Was that part of their thinking? Do you know, do you know what's quite tricky here is that, that it's definitely the perception. I, I have not picked up on it directly myself, and I don't know whether it's a historical legacy of the way in which it's talked about, but from people that I speak to at work, they, they see the Labour Party now as no longer being the party of the traditional working class by which they mean like the, the the white working class. They, they're seen as a party of minorities, of um, various kind of campaign issues, but they're not really for the, for the, the working man. And that, that, that's a, in, it's a little bit parallel to the situation in America where the Democratic Party were perceived as being dependent on a rainbow coalition of like lots and lots of different elements of society without any one of them being dominant. So it was like a hodgepodge of different interest groups that were united in trying to bring about some kind of, you know, progressive change that would advantage previously disadvantaged groups. And the the way in which that's perceived by the old working class is that, look, they've abandoned us, that they're, they're not 
any longer trying to, to look out for our interests. Of course, the difference is, is that the Democratic Party have never pretended to be social democratic, whereas the Labour Party did. But can you answer my question directly? The, the, the question is, faced with this issue of racism, uh, you said Corbyn and the Labour Party basically gave oh, a mealy-mouthed response, like, of course, we're against racism, but they didn't do anything really to confront it directly. Was their view, which is a big deal in the United States, it's resurgent, um, was their view that we can sidestep all these racial issues and forge unity among the working class instead of racial, ethnic, uh, national divisions? We can overcome that on the basis of a social democratic program where the focus is, you know, we're, we're all in this together, whether you call it society or the people or the working class. But the idea is, you know, we can unite and fight uh, for, you know, uh, a, a better society on economic grounds without explicitly confronting racism. I, I can see why you say that, and the, the America, but it, it's slightly different to the American situation in the sense that that is never made as explicit in the British context. It, it, they, they don't say that, you know, an, a rising economic tide will lift all boats, and that's not the message. They, they, they do still pay lip service to the idea that racism needs to be confronted, but the, the difference is that the manner in which they do that is not to go, okay, this is the issue around the way in which you're scapegoating immigrants. This is what we're saying. Immigration is not the problem. You kind of not funding services properly is the problem. Um, and all, all, all the kind of deeper questions of what leads to the crisis of the system and trying to put that onto the back of immigrants, they did not go full on in attacking that message. And that's the problem. They, did, they didn't say that our, our program is going to benefit. No, that, that, that didn't happen in the same way that it did in America. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, and this is our interview with Ravi Bally about the UK elections. We will conclude this interview in a moment, but first we're going to take a quick break to talk to you a little bit about MHI. Hello, this is Anne Jacquard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. 
Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. There's, there, there seems to have been a lot of wishful thinking amongst Labour Party activists that if only we can get the vote out and we can knit together all these different um, potential constituencies, then the Labour Party will represent the majority in society because all these individual um, constituencies in some ways represent the majority. So the blacks, the women's, the gays, all of, you know, all the different supposedly marginalized interest groups, they do form the bulk of society now would be the narrative. Right. And even somebody, you know, who was running a strict Oh, Hillary Clinton was a neoliberal, and that was the problem back in 2016. And, you know, Bernie would have won. Uh, and you got to appeal to these Obama-Trump voters, the people who flipped from the Democrats to vote for Trump. Um, Michael Moore, right? Everybody knows Michael Moore. He was running that line. Uh, now, he, you know, he, he's, he's given up on that. And... He says, look, you're never going to win back these Obama-Trump voters. They're gone. What you have to do is, you know, knit together a constituency um, in a different way. Uh, really, without without blinking, you know, he's shifted. Uh, and he kind of fudges that by talking about that the, the working class is not, you know, Joe Sixpack with a hard hat. And, it, you know, and that's actually correct. You know, that, that's been a big problem in my mind and the way the left in the United States uh, talks about the working class as if it's what you call the traditional working class. Um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of women, first of all, a lot of non-white people, first of all, a lot of immigrants. Um, and so he's saying, you know, well, this is still working class politics, which is true but uh, it's 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 not what he was saying at all before so um yeah i mean th th so this th this idea of knitting together constituencies uh ha has taken over in a big way in the united states it seems to be where labor is going to be headed in the future maybe but the pushback against that is the, the people like Jacobin and so forth who have been really aggressively uh, pushing this idea of like social democracy, gripping the hearts and minds of the people and uniting them despite their differences. And, and you know, so the problem is neoliberalism and what we need is social democracy. And that will just like put end to a lot of these other problems. Yeah, um, I, I, I think that the the Michael Moore position is more the way in which the Labour activists think than the Jacobin position. You mean the previous Michael Moore position? No, the the, the new the new one. 
um, which doesn't it, it doesn't seem that new to me in, in the context of America, where I mean Jesse Jackson was like associated with the kind of Rainbow Coalition idea for for quite some time, um, going back to his his run for president and all the I remember the discussion then was about how do you kind of knit together all these different constituencies into um, a movement for change. And that, that seems to be the way that the kind of the, the radical momentum activists are, are, are trying to push things. And you're saying that's at odds with other factions or ten, that this is a tension within the Labour Party? Yeah, because there's, there's a level at which if you're going to confront these kind of major divisions that exist in society of, you know, racism, sexism, homophobia and all the rest of it, if you're going to confront them to the point where you are going to have a working class that sees themselves united despite all these distinctions, those those things are going to need to be challenged. It's just that the way in which it's done cannot be just by um, appealing to sort of particular political outcomes. Those that 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 kind of like, okay, we'll have something. We've got something to offer to you. We've got something to offer to you. And that the idea that you can distribute all these favors to these different groups and cobble together a coalition that will take you to power and allow you to transform society, that that's just it's just nonsense. Instead, all those kind of issues of challenging racism, sexism, homophobia, they're all crucial to creating a new society. But it has to be done on the basis of recognizing that the people who are going to fight for that and the way in which it's going to be done has to be led by those people themselves with a kind of clarity as to why everyone else who's involved in a struggle for a new society should support them in that struggle. And that, that, that's not just, that can't be done by just offering some political incentive to it. It, it, it needs to be, kind of based on fundamental ideas of what real change means and how we bring it about. And that that's not what any politician is doing at the moment. I, I could not agree with you more, Ravi. I think that this is like really the, the, the key problem. And it, it goes to the issue of the utter insufficiency of electoral politics for our moment in time, where really what is threatening society are these divisions among the working people uh, you know on the basis of nationality on the basis of ethnicity race gender and so forth the the, the problem for a party that seeks to govern is they're always looking can we win the votes we have to be majoritarian and so they are structurally compelled to sacrifice the interests of smaller groups minority groups oppressed groups and so forth and so uh, rather than saying, listen to these people, you know, they are taking the lead and we have to encourage them taking the lead. And this is how we're going to overcome the divisions in our society. They try to like, OK, we, we have to appeal to the, the, the other elements who are afraid of this. And it's always very short term thinking, uh, you know, how do we win the next election? Uh, and so they're trying to squeak through with election victories or narrow defeats or whatever it might be and not confronting the social the, the, the various social divisions they take them for granted and 
you know, say we got to get our votes among these uh, fearful uh, people in the among the whites and this and, and that and so forth. Uh, in the United States, that's how it plays out. But uh, you know, you 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 don't want to upset the apple cart too much by looking like you're you know um, going full on against you know white white supremacy or whatever other kind of you know supremacy we've got like you know english supremacy it might be so yeah i mean could you speak to this issue of 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 electoral politics and and whether you think it 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 can um grapple with the problems that we we are confronted with right now well i think the way in which they conceive of democracy in other words those who want to win kind of political power and kind of capture the state to bring about whatever change they want is that they they regard democracy and the will of the people as okay what are the people's views now and how do we nudge them in the direction of accepting the views that we have that will you know, be a more positive contribution to the new society? And it's all about how do we lead people to um, take a more progressive view on making a difference in society. And it's, it, it's an elitist conception of how people regard their own agency and if you if you if you start from the point of view of look there are these people who for very legitimate reasons think that they are being discriminated against look at what they're saying look at why their kind of struggles are worthy of everyone's support and you 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 have to root that in some kind of it's almost like going beyond politics to to looking at a fundamental orientation to the world, to society, how we as human beings live in it, and what it would take to transform that in a way that would allow us to all live free. And that that goes beyond any political program or any specific demand that you'd be able to put forward, because those those kind of things should flow from those those, those more fundamental questions of who are we and how do we get to where we want to be? And the specific specific form it takes, I think, has to be secondary to those more, more fundamental questions. And do you think that any of these electoral political parties, Democratic Party, Labour Party, where you are, can do that? I think I think they're all actually a barrier to doing that. And part, part of the difficulty is, is in my old organisation, I used to be in a vanguardist organization we used to say that well the time that people think about politics is during elections and yet that's that that is exactly the problem because if the only time you think about politics is who are you going to elect in order to make things happen for you that's a problematic conception of politics because it's assuming that someone else is going to do it for you that's what has to be broken down because we have to be responsible for making the change we want to see. No one's going to do it for us. Yeah, it's kind of ironic. This is an organization that wanted to change all of society, but it didn't want to change the idea that, okay, when people care about politics is during an election campaign. And then they stood candidates against them in order to break them away from the Labour Party, which they rightly saw as as a barrier. But 
the fact that they would restrict it to election times to, you know, put forward candidates and challenge the Labour Party, uh, uh, it it does not break down that kind of division between the idea that there are people who um, work and make things happen in society, and there's there's those who are responsible for thinking about how things should be run. And until kind of working people say, all right, I'm quite capable of organizing my own life, you know, in conjunction with others, I'm not going to do it as an individual. But when people think, okay, I will, the only person I can rely on to, to shape what happens to me is myself, I need to have an input into what's going on. We will not have fundamental change. And electoral politics is the barrier to that, as is much of far left politics because it, it, it still assumes a leadership role rather than thinking how do you help people to progress their own thinking so that they develop to the point where they understand okay i am capable of doing this by by challenging these things well that's all the time we have today on radio free humanity the marxist humanist podcast thank you again to ravi bally for being our special guest today to discuss the uk elections Uh, Please do subscribe to the podcast, leave us a comment on the MarxistHumanistInitiative.org website, consider making a donation. We'd love to have some more comments and ratings on iTunes and other podcast services and apps, so please uh, stop by those places as well. 